Any any prayer requests today, tonight? I've got a prayer request. I'm a little bit embarrassed to ask. Okay. Actually, I have two things I'm to say about. Um, you want to put your last name on there? Is that okay? I've just finished this book that I've been working on for ever, <laughs> and I would be grateful for your prayers. Yes. Um, if something good happened with this. I hope it does. What was the day on? I think it's really important. Um, and I'm about ready to, I've already contacted the guy who's who's the head of um, Ignatius. I know Father Fessio personally, and I talked with him a half a year ago, nine months ago, and I told him, I asked him if he would take a look at it, and said, not until you're done. <laughs> 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 sorry, sorry. Um, anyway, I'd be grateful for your prayers. Grateful for your prayers. And the other thing I want to say about, I hope there are times when I feel a little bit awkward um, be, saying prayers for us as a group. I mean, about, we've always asked for, for a long time, we've asked for prayer requests and al always glad to get them because it's helped us know more about each of you and the kind of burdens that you carry in. That's, that to me is a grace for us, and I hope it's a grace for the class. Um, and sometimes I feel a little bit awkward because I'm praying for everybody, and I hope I'm not being presumptuous doing that. That, that um, <coughs> Anyway, just to let you know, I'm aware of that. Um, I hope if it doesn't always speak for you, you know that that's something still in my heart. Um, when I make prayers, it's something that I believe is important for all of us, or I wouldn't say the prayers. But anyway, just know that, okay? In the name of the Father, <coughs> Son, <coughs> Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you and the gift of yourself to us, um, particularly in the Mass this morning. We carry you within us. The work is, in some sense, done and only beginning, both. That's the paradox of our faith. You completed an action. Um, you made that clear to us, but you also call us to share in it. So all of us are involved in this ongoing mystery. You call us away from the world to put this world away. We happen to be reading a work now that does the same thing. Dante presents himself as a pilgrim trying to leave the world, to put worldliness behind. Not an easy thing for any of us, um, but it's important. <coughs> um, we know that the more we do that, the, the more we will be able to bring you to what we do with each other. So strengthen us in our efforts, um, and in this particular work, help us to give ourselves completely, um, open ourselves to it, particularly where there are challenges, because the best poetry does that just as you do. So help all of us in our efforts to put the world away, to bring your love um, so that others will know you through us, um, particularly where people don't want to know you. Um, we offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. <coughs> um, did you all get that poem? Yeah. Is that Suzanne? Mm -hmm. I told you I'd try to 
get some Easter poems for us? Can you, can you pull out that packet Suzanne just gave it to you? It's called Easter poems. I thought what I would do is, is through this next Easter period up until Pentecost, maybe beyond, I'm not, I'm, um, there's, I think there's four poems here. Four, yeah, there's four poems. So over the next four weeks, we will read Easter poems, okay? Um, two of them are by um, George Herbert. You remember he's an Anglican priest. He's a contemporary of um, Duns and Shakespeare. He, he writes at the beginning of the Renaissance. Um, after the schism, after the <coughs> Reformation, he's Anglican. And you know that Gerard Manley Hopkins is a Catholic priest in England. It's interesting, but it's, this is really interesting. They're both English. Name, name an American poet who's a priest, who's an established poet. You won't be able to do it. You won't be able to do it. Whatever that says about us. Maybe there's some budding here in our... Um, right, but Anglican, George, George Herbert's Anglican. Um, Gerard Manny Hopkins is um, um, Catholic. They are, they are great, great poets, both of them from England. So, and these are Easter poems by both of them, okay? Um, I wanted to start with Hopkins. Um, he's a favorite of mine, as you know. And we'll go on and go through each one of them for the next four weeks. <coughs> and I'm not gonna comment on them, I'm just gonna read them so you can enjoy them. Oh, by the way, before we start, one of the parishioners um, in the Friday morning class came up to us this morning and she expressed something that I, I, I think is something most of you feel. I'm not sure, so I may be taking time I shouldn't, but I, I think there's probably a truth to what I'm saying. She said, you know, Bob, oh, you got it? Oh, great. She said, you know, I didn't grow up reading, I didn't read poetry, didn't read literature, and I feel so stupid reading this stuff. When you go over the lines in class and I hear them read, her, her response says, of course it's that way, it's so sensible, it's there, it's, you know, but she didn't see it. I was laughing at her and I, and I told her, I'm going to do this briefly because I think I've said, I've told this story to you guys before. When I started out of college, I, my mom thought I would be a good doctor. <laughs> I didn't grow up reading, honestly, I didn't, honestly I'm, I'm not lying, I'm not exaggerating. I didn't grow up reading, I didn't grow up writing. I, um, I got through school on probably native abilities, went high school into college. Basketball was my love. When I went to college, my real love was basketball. I wanted to play basketball. I was a pre-med pre -med major. It was, it was the most idiotic, one of, one, sorry, one of the most idiotic things I've done in my life. <laughs> Zoology, chemistry. I had no background in those. I flunked. I flunked all of them. I didn't pass the English exam, so I had to take bonehead English my first semester. I think I've told you all this. Is bonehead that English. Called bonehead. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I took bonehead English. Probably I've been a few of those. Catalog, I took bonehead English. I mean, I hope you understand. Me. I've been spending my life teaching English to kids, and I'm a pretty tough teacher. I I failed bonehead English. Second semester, I had to take it again. I failed it again, <laughs> and flunked out of college. Um, I was on my own, putting myself through college. I had to work, and then gradually came back to JC and was working to put myself through school and went through JC. I, one of the first courses I took in JC was an English course and I read a book by Joseph Conrad. It blew me away. 
I just didn't, I mean, all through high school, I had, I can't remember a poem, I can't remember a novel, I don't remember a work that I read. But I read that novel and it stunned me that anybody could write like that. Just stunned me. And I was taken by it. And after that I majored, I transferred to UC Berkeley. It's where Doc and I met. We were both English majors. I came in as a junior, she had transferred. She was a really bright student. I wasn't. Um, I noticed that. <laughs> I won't say anything else. <laughs> I'm not gonna. I am not gonna hold you that more soon. <laughs> anyway, um, I majored in English, and um, the first semester there, I had to take a course. We had to take a course in literary criticism because you had to prepare yourself to be a critic of literature to be an English major. And one part of the course that I was taking with this teacher that went on to be one of the most important influences in my life was a teacher named Thomas R. I think he's dead now. And towards the end of our semester, he had a section on poetry. I never read poetry that I could remember. I don't think I did. And I can remember going through, we were reading Robert Frost and Gerard Manley Hopkins. And I can remember reading poems. I'm not kidding. I am not exaggerating. I went to him and I said, explain this to me. I don't understand. I'm not exaggerating. I said, this is like Latin. Robert, if you've read Robert Frost, you know how simple his language is. I read it and thought, what's going on here? What is this? I, I can make no sense of it, honestly. And he said this to me, which was, I mean, this will be for, I'll take this to my grave. He said, Poetry is words put together that form sentences that make statements about human experience. <laughs> I, I, before that statement, I was absolutely mystified. As soon as he said that, it's like he brought it within the range of my own abilities. From, after, from that point on, I believe that I could read poetry. What I said to the woman, Barbara, today was, it's funny because what you're describing is what, is what, you did that, I know. What she was, I said to Barbara, I said, what you're describing is exactly what all of us go through. I can remember sitting in a classroom, having read a book, and listening to the teacher read through lines, and, and as soon as she read them, they had a meaning that they didn't have when I'd read them alone myself. You've been hearing me say for years, read poetry aloud. Because when we read it in the silence of our minds, we're angels. We're in disembodied thought. Put a sound to it, and there's another sense. One of our senses. We're corporeal creatures. We're not angels. We, the, the great glory that God gave us was our bodies. Even though everybody today wants to destroy them. It's what makes us who we are. It's our glory. For Christ to descend into the body? How good is that? Anyway, when you read poetry, you read it. But I said to her, it's so funny because I can remember the same experience. Um, it, it was only in time, gradually reading, working with teachers who helped me to see things, and <coughs> becoming a teacher myself and doing it. So if any of you are feeling strange or as if you're out of place, you shouldn't. What I, what I loved about what Barbara said this morning is she's, she's not young anymore. She's not young anymore. She's loving it. You know, she's an older woman. She's so glad to be learning. What a gift to all of us that we can believe. Last thing, and then I'm going to start. I've said this to you before. I want to say it again. 
I, I think some of you are grateful to me and Suzanne for what we're doing. I've said this to you, I am genuinely grateful for you guys that you keep showing up, that something's going on in you guys that makes it worth your taking the trouble to do this when lots of people will. That's an extraordinary gift to me. I think you know that. Yes. And to put it more strongly here, I've been teaching the Divine Comedy for whatever, it's, I can't count the number of years now. I've been teaching the Divine Comedy. I'm going through this, the, the Paradiso for I can't, how many times? And it's stunning me. It's stunning me that I'm seeing things, I'm, I hope to get them across, but I'm, it's stunning me. I've said to students for years, it's going to be one of the most intellectually challenging, one of the most theologically challenging pieces of literature you read because it's full of intellectual stuff. It's not like the Inferno Purgatorio. It's full of theology and intellectual things. It's, it's a tough read on the mind. I'm reading it now and I'm seeing an aspect of it I never saw before. It stuns me. Every year that I've gone back to that, it grows. Um, and it wouldn't be happening to me right now if it weren't for you guys. I'm saying that really seriously. I'm just genuinely grateful. So. Okay. Gerard Manley Hopkins, first poem, Easter Communion. Each one of these is written for the occasion of Easter, okay? Two by Gerard Manley Hopkins and two by her. <coughs> Easter Communion. Pure fasted faces draw unto this feast. God comes to all sweetness to your Lenten lips. You striped in secret with breathtaking whips. Those crooked, rough, scored checkers may be pieced. To crosses meant for Jesus, you whom the East withdraw to thin and pursuant cold so nips. Breathe Easter now, you surged fellowships, you vigil keepers with low flames decreased. You've been carrying all of these burdens through <coughs> fasting. It's what we take on. How many of us can count the cost? Not eating a cookie on a particular night or you know, whatever it is we do. But spiritually, it's, it's a chastising. It's a correcting our wills. It's putting a whip to us, something like that. God shall o'erbrim the measures you've spent with oil of gladness for sackcloth and freeze and the ever-fretting shirt of punishments. Remember in the olden days in Catholic world, they used to wear those hair cloths and yeah. mm -hmm. to, to, as a form of penance to remind them of what they would do. And the ever fretting shirt of punishment give Murray threaded golden folds of ease. Your scarce sheathed bones are weary of being bent. Lo, God shall strengthen all the feeble knees. That's what Easter Communion did, does. We'll do one each week. Sorry. We'll do one each week. Okay. Um, let's go. Literature of prophecy is prophecy. I want to remind everybody um, to go back to that notion because it's important. I've been <coughs> claiming from the beginning that literature is can be, in the, in the great writers, a form of prophecy. And by that, I, I never meant they tell the future, they don't. What the great prophet, what the great poets do is take us to a depth of understanding we cannot reach on our own. 
They have gifts of spirit, gifts of mind, of heart, that, and they have a great courage to go to depths that most people aren't willing to go to because it's painful. I think I've given that quote from Flaubert who said that the, the, poets, the poets and the saints, um, I can't remember the third category, the warriors, all belong to the same category because what they do is at great cost. I believe that's true of the great poets, Faulkner, Dante, Shakespeare. They have the courage to look at things most people don't have the courage to look at. Every epic that we've looked at from the beginning, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, now the Divine Comedy, you know that Dante's picking up that whole epic tradition. Every one of those epics has a prophetic element. Every single one of them. Those of you who've done them know it. When Dante writes, he's simply establishing himself in that epic tradition. He's carrying forward. The, the difference is he's not like Virgil and Homer because he's a Christian and he a Catholic. He believes that he, he's been witness to a revelation that the pagans didn't have. So he's going to be able to go to a, a depth that even the ancient poets couldn't go to, even though he's going to use them. So every epic has had an element of prophecy. We know from reading Dante that all along the way, Dante keeps encountering people who, who keep giving hints that something's going to happen. And Dante is confused. He's bewildered. He doesn't know what to make of it. It'll be in our reading today because he's going to meet with his great-great-grandfather who's going to suddenly clarify everything. But all along, hints will be given of something. There's a prophetic element to something. Those of you who've been here from the beginning, you know that when, in Virgil, when Aeneas goes to the underworld, remember Odysseus went to the underworld, when Aeneas goes to the underworld, he meets his father. And he's been wandering for eight years trying to found this city that he keeps being called to. You know, we've talked about the, how important the Aeneid is. It's the first great epic that, gives, that makes clear what a calling is. Aeneas is on his journey. The gods tell him to do something. He does it. He finds he's missed. Keeps going. He does it again. He finds he's missed. He does it again and again and again and again until he comes to Carthage and he sees the story of his life on Juno's temple. So the whole Trojan War is there. One of the great ironies of that moment is that the hero they're depicting on, that, on those friezes, that wall, was eight years ago and have no clues of the failings that he's experienced for the last eight years. Because again and again and again, everything he's done has been wrong. That's Virgil. So Virgil's critiquing this heroic code that he received from Homer, but he's deepening it. Aeneas is going to go on to do something that nobody else has done. He's going to found this universal, eternal city, Rome. So Dante, Dante is a good reader. He knows this stuff. He's read all of it really well. and you know, That's why Virgil's his guide. Okay. So every epic has had an, um, a prophetic element. When we get to Cachuguida shortly, Dante's going to be in the same experience Aeneas was with, um, with Anchises, his father, except this is not, a, this is not an, a historical past or a work of fiction. This is an actual living person. Dante is a human being who's relating something prophetic. So it's not literature anymore. We're not in a mythic world. <coughs> We're both in a mythic world and a real world at the same time. Nobody has done that before. Okay. So um, 
Dante's made us aware that there's a prophetic element to everything he's doing. Um, and remember, one of the most important things, when we're reading literature, we're not reading essays. We're not reading people expressing ideas. Um, think about the great apologists of our age. You name them, you pick your own name. They're all working through ideas. <coughs> they leave us in our heads. Dante's not doing that. Dante's telling us a story so that we actually participate in what goes on in real life. We're out of our heads. We're participating in something real. It's an actual journey. That's what literature does. Okay? So it gets us out of our heads to, so that it's possible for us to actually experience something with another human being concretely, immediately, not in our minds. Even though, even though Dante's appealing to our minds all the time. I've said this, I've said this before and before. Poetry is giving us knowledge as experience, not as ideas. Okay? Wait if you can, Chester. Um, so what Dante's doing in the Divine Comedy, and I'll, this will become, I hope, much clearer in just a minute. What he's doing is enlarging our powers of sight, our field of vision, through experience, not just ideas. We're actually going through things so that we're experiencing a larger world. We've gone through hell. It's not just an idea. It's not a theological idea. We've actually gone through it. We've gone through purgatory. It's not just an idea. We've actually experienced it. Now we're going into heaven. Okay? And I want to come back to that because that's where we are. Um, if you can be brief, because I, I really, we've got a lot of, to cover here. It was just about the grandfather. Catch you, Guida? Telling him. What's going to happen? Wait on it, can you? Because we're going to yeah. get there. Can you wait? Okay. Um, so, remember, just as a review, remember when we started off, Dante and Beatrice left the earthly paradise and they began to ascend into the heavens. A couple of things were important for us to see then. If we're reading well, we saw that in going up purgatory, Dante, along with all the other souls, was recovering a wholeness that he'd lost. We talked about St. Augustine's idea of memory, that that's where we go to recover what we've lost. What, they, what they're recovering is that union with God, because when Adam and Eve were created, Adam and Eve didn't look at each other as objects. They were subjects to each other. They, they lived fully in each other. One of the effects of the fall is this dichotomy to objectify people, to see I, you, an object. So, and I've suggested before, for any one of us to enter into the personhood of another person, the selfhood of another person, is to take on tremendous risks, because once you do that, you enter into the disorders of another person. We, we all know that from marriages. Um, that, that it's never easy, because we discover that there are these disorders that we carry from our past, and suddenly we have to learn to do something with them. So the wholeness that they're recovering just isn't an idea, it's an actual experience. And the fruit of it is this indwelling. That it's, not, it's no longer just I, a subject, you, an object. You know that as they move along, they begin, they begin to enter into the another, so they anticipate. They actually know what the other is thinking before the other person can express it. They're learning to become one with each other. How easy is that? Just leave it at that, okay? 
And think, think about everything in the world, in our world, that encourages us to see other people as objects, to use them. Largely in our world for financial success, to get ahead. Career, money, wealth, prestige, those are the ideals of our culture. So what's going on in the purgatorio is souls are moving beyond that. Remember Dante said, I came to cure my blindness, to put that worldliness away, to move closer to God. So as we went, as we journey up the heavens with him, we see that in the first third <coughs> of his journey, he's, he's experiencing people. Remember, they're saved. They're, they're saved. They're, he's meeting people um, who are defined by a deficiency in a virtue. So in the moon, it was the deficiency of the natural virtues, fortitude, justice, pleasure, prudence. Except when we get to the sun, what we're seeing is people who are perfected in prudence. Um, <clears throat> so at the level of the moon, Dante introduced it to this notion of an absolute and conditional will. And I tried, I gave examples, I think you remember, if, um, if, uh, if, a young couple were going out on a date, and the guy pressed for sex, and the girl gave in, even though she didn't want to, that's a conditional will. If a girl was raped, but she never consented on her will, kept, kept her will intact, even if somebody inflicted that pain on her, that was an example of an absolute will. Dante's making a distinction because remember, he, he and Shakespeare are the great poets of human responsibility, of free will. But they look, they, they look at humans as responsible for what they do so that we can learn about ourselves. So at every level, Dante's showing us, again, something about our human nature, the way he did in the Inferno, the way he did in, in the Purgatory. Here it was fortitude, here it's justice, here it's pleasure, here it's prudence. Um, those same natural virtues will be picked up here in the next level, except there we're going to find examples of people perfected in those virtues. So, for example, in the level of Mars, <coughs> we're going to meet souls who, who sacrifice their lives in battle. And I suggested, you know, this, this is really interesting to me. It's in the level of the sun that Dante meets the great theologians, St. <coughs> Thomas, Bonaventure, and, and all the other souls that are named in those, you know, those, those wreaths, those, those lights, those garlands of light. In the next so level, he meets soldiers. They're not intellectuals, they're not the doctors of the church, but they're higher, I think, because they gave their lives. They died. I, Joan of Arc would be in that category. Um, so they're not these great intellectuals. They're people who absolutely gave up their lives in battle for Christ. So at each level, we're learning to see something about our nature and degrees of merit, the way in which we leave our, live our lives out in Christ. Okay. Um, now, here's where we're going. This, to me, is the, to me one of the most important things to see about the Paradiso. Um, remember, this is really stunning to me. Remember, when we got, wait, how to do this. So, we know that the Inferno and the Paradiso are final ends. 
Okay. If I could make that clear, it would be something like this. Dante's the last poet. Shakespeare does what he does because he has the same vision. Dante's the last Catholic poet of any major influence to help us see that, um, that the only proper way, the only way we can fully understand our world is by setting the world against final ends. That what we're doing is either damning us or saving us. That we're, even, we're either moving closer to our damnation or we're moving closer to Christ and God, one or the other. Remember I gave you the allegorical method that we're either, every act we make is either helping us move closer to Christ, God, return to him, or moving away. Um, but we can't see that without a sense of final ends. Dante makes that clear. How? Because he, he shows us hell on one end, paradise on the other. In both of those conditions, we're seeing the ultimate end of a human soul. What that, what's become of that soul because of what they did on earth. Yeah? Purgatory's in the middle. Final ends will be there finally. Purgatory will disappear. Right? At the, at the end time, at the end times, it'll all be settled. There'll be no purgatory. It's going to stop. I hope everybody's clear in that. Right? So pur purgatory's... It, purgatory is that place in which souls who have been incomplete in their efforts to do penance are shown a mercy to continue, okay? Um, so Dante helps us to see <clears throat> ourselves as we are by showing us how we are in final ends. The modern world, this is so crucial, the modern world has taken this out. What it's replaced with, if you, if you look at Jane Austen, Dickens, Melville, we've been here. We did it with Melville and Faulkner. What replaces, well, here, put it there. What replaces holiness is respectability. How long we get along in the world. We measure ourselves by appearances, by how we seem with other people. How many of us actually measure ourselves against the standard of holiness? Why does the church hold the saints up every day? Because they're asking us not to get caught in the world to see that our final end is that. So when we're in the world, we tend to measure ourselves by the success of people, how well I'm doing, how successful I am, how much money I have, respectability. When we did Moby Dick and Faulkner, I mean, all those of you who've done it, you know that world is, it's still protected because there's a great good in it. We saw that there's a, in Faulkner, there are really good people, but Faulkner's also exposing difficulties there, okay? Dante's showing us everything from the point of view of a final end. Hell and paradise are there. Those are final ends. They're fixed. The people in heaven are there. People in hell are there. Okay. Now, here's where it's get to me really, really interesting. We know that the mode of knowing, the mode of being for each canticle is different. The mode of knowing for in the inferno, for hell, is irony. People don't know that they don't know. They're there, they're blind. They're just mechanically repeating what it is they wanted more than <coughs> they're stuck. That's what they do. It's like an eternal now. That's what they want, that's what they're doing. Again and again and again. That's what held it. I remember telling you that I, I 
beloved that image, but it frightens me personally. You know, that guy running off as if he's the winner of the race. You can see him going through life like that. I've won, I've won, I've won. That's what he's doing forever. That'll be his pleasure. That'll be his punishment. In purgatory, the mode of knowing isn't irony. It's not that people don't know. It's that um, the people in hell wanted justice. That's what they have. The people in purgatory are accepting justice because they know they're sinners. But they want mercy. They want to return to God. So every one of them is doing penance in satisfaction of a law they've broken. The law is not done away with. I've been harping on that forever because the modern world wants to treat faith like it annuls the law, like it's gone. That's Calvin. It's not us. Um, the law's not done. They wouldn't be doing penance if they weren't satisfying a law. But they're doing it with mercy. They're doing it with the love of a God who's welcoming them on. So they're doing it in joy. They want to get better. They're learning to fulfill the law in mercy. Because buried in the law is this love of God that's great enough that his son would have come to the earth to offer his life for us. So Christ himself said, the law is fulfilled. I'm not, I'm not here to undermine. He said, I'm here to fulfill the law. Every iota of it. He does not annul the law. He fulfills it. We don't do away with the law. That's that Protestant antinomianism, anti-law. It's faith makes everything. Dante's a Catholic. He, he's not doing that. So the mode of knowing, the mode of being in purgatory is mercy. Justice and mercy. In purgatory, the law, justice, is being fulfilled in mercy. It's not being done away with. I hope that's clear. It, to me, it's, it's so crucial. It, it, the, the modern world has so screwed it up. The law is not done away with it. You don't do away with the law. You fulfill it in love, which means you fulfill it at the cost of a cross. Okay. So when things get hard, <laughs> you go to a cross, whatever form that will take. So justice, mercy, in paradise, the mode of being is forgiveness because the debt's been paid. When Cunesis says, I forgive myself, there's not an element of pride. Here, hold on, just, you, just be still for a minute. Um, I, one of the parishioners in the morning club, be still for me. Um, one of the parishioners in the, in the class when we were doing this gave the example of going to a priest for confession once and the priest commenting, he said, I can't remember how he put it, but he said, God's already forgiven you. The question, the question is, have you forgiven yourself? I want to say this really seriously. There's nothing of pride in Cunisa. Hold on to this because, because I'm going to get to this in a minute. I hope in a minute it's going to become really clear, but just be patient with me for a minute. How many people facing their own sins forgive themselves? And to the extent that they don't, how forgiving are they of other people? Wait, God says forgive 70 times 7, 70 times 7, yeah? yeah. That's always with other people? If he, if he means it literally at all, he means it with all of us. How many, how many of us forgive ourselves 70 times when we commit sins? And if we, don't, if we don't bring that to ourselves, how in the world can we bring it to somebody else? The state of being in, in Paradiso is forgiveness. The debt's paid. 
There's nobody there who isn't, this is where this is going, there is nobody there who isn't in joy and gratitude. Now stop and think about this. This is so extraordinary to me. I said months ago, purgatory is an image of the church. This is what we're supposed to be doing in the world, doing penance, being glad, becoming virtuous. Otherwise, what are we doing with our lives? Waiting to the end and say, is this all it was for? We're supposed to be doing that every day of our lives. What's the condition of paradise? Here's the crucial thing. Dante's not showing us something yet to be. Christ has already come. He's done it. We're supposed to be living that joy now. How many of us live with that kind of joy? Because here's the problem. When we're facing sin with each other, it's much easier to condemn somebody. It's much harder to condemn them and then show them mercy and then forgive them. Because to forgive somebody means let it go. Once you've, once you've told your grandson, sit down and time out, when he gets up, let it go. Forgive it. The cost has been paid. But to hold on to it? Yeah, resentments, wounds, and you, we all know this. So Christ did it. Every one of the gospel readings in our... Right, Easter, Nicodemus says, Christ says, be born again. How do I be born again? Jump back into my mother's... And Christ said, no, move with the Spirit. Christ is saying right now, the, for, the act has been done. The question is, can we do it? And this is what I said a couple of weeks ago. Has anybody in literature, anybody in literature, ever shown us a sustained action of nothing but joy? I said this really truly last week. I don't believe we can tolerate it. Most of us bring this darkness to our world because we don't know how to be glad and sustain it. If that's the case, how are we living Christ? It's been done. We're, at, we're not Calvinists. We're not fundamentalists. It's not over. There's a corpus in the Catholic Church. There is not in the Protestant churches or the fundamentalists. The corpus is gone. We're asked to enter a cross to answer a justice bring mercy and forgiveness, to take a joy in it now and live it. So what Dante's showing us is not hell, purgatory on the way, a state yet to be. This is what's stunning. He's showing us our faith now the way it should be lived. What he's doing in the Paradiso is taking us through the heavens to enlarge our vision, our understanding of the way Christ is at work in the world. This is not supposed to be a lesson in theology. It's an action helping us to enter into our faith more fully with each other. Not to do away with justice, not to ignore it. That's a wrong. To bring, to bring a mercy to the justice and also to bring a forgiveness to that. That's our faith. It's not something we're supposed to wait until the next life or until purgatory's over. The church is purgatory now. Christ has forgiven us. He does not do away with justice. He expects us to be tough-minded. You cannot do this. That's wrong. To bring a mercy to that and a forgiveness. So what Dante's doing is this is not just something in the past going to her future. You know, um, this is the way it is here and now with Christ. 
And what we're doing in going through the Paradiso is experiencing the enlargement of that world when we enter into it, the joys that are there. Okay, so. Um, I can put this differently. I mean, I, 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 I've asked all of you to read this and read it again because I know if you read it again, you'll, you'll get more out of it. Name a novel. I challenge anybody. Name a novel that doesn't turn on a conflict between good and evil. Jane Austen, Dickens, Joyce, Shakespeare, Dante. No. Dante, from the beginning of the Paradiso to the end of the Paradiso, there is no conflict. It is a continuous joy. How many of us can sustain a joy in the world? I just think it's hard for us because our inclination is the fall that gets a hold of us, it beats us down, it wears us out. We're so ready to find fault. A Catholic is not asked to let those go. I'm, I'm saying, I hope everybody's hearing me. He, this is our faith. There's a wrong that has to be answered. It's with hell. There's a mercy to bring to it. There's a forgiveness that it's fruit. Those are things we're supposed to be living now. So um, it's prophetic in this sense. It's laying out our faith. It's helping us to see ourselves as we are, but it's also helping us to see Christ as he is. Remember, one of the things that I said a week ago, why doesn't Christ meet Dante when um, he's through with Beatrice in the earthly paradise? Why isn't Christ there to greet him into his kingdom? This is not my Lord and Savior, even though it is. Dante will not see Christ until he learns to see him everywhere, this logos that is present everywhere. The Christ that he will see at the end of the, work, the, end of the Paradiso, because he'll have a beatific vision, that's where this is going. This Christ will be the Word, the, begin, the Alpha, the Omega. He is present in everything in creation. What Dante's learning as he goes up to heaven is to see Christ everywhere. After he starts seeing him in things, he's going to start seeing him in persons. He's going to see Christ in Mary. He's going to see Christ in Veronica's cloth. He's going to have glimpses of Christ. They're all preparing him for what? To see Christ in this extraordinary fullness as he is. So the Paradiso is not just this adventure story. Um, um, and it's not about the future what each one of us hopes to do if we get out of purgatory. So I'm thinking most, it's, this is what we're supposed, this is our faith. We're not Calvinists, I hope. We're, this is our Catholic faith. What Dante's doing is showing, this is our world, this is our faith to live. And Dante has been the great poet of it. I think that's why um, Pope Francis said he wanted, you know, two years ago he said he wanted the whole Catholic world to read Dante. That wasn't a, arbitrary thing. Anyway, let me stop. That's a review. I want to, we've got a lot of reading to do and I want to get into the text. Any, any questions or? I hope you can understand why this overwhelms me a little bit. Sorry if I'm doing the same thing to you. I've always told my students going into the Paradiso, it's going to be a tough read. I, I never saw this quite like this before. It stuns me to see it. Any questions? Yeah. Yeah. You used a word more. I, you were talking about, it's not about something morphing together. 
Morphing? No, no, no. Morphing as in coming together as something. You used a word I had in no indwelling. idea. Indwelling. indwelling. No, it wasn't indwelling. I don't know. Indwelling is the one that I've been using for weeks. I mean, that David's right on on that. I've been, you know, you know how important that's been to me because it's, it becomes clear at the end of purgatory and it's, at, it's, it's present at every stage. You, you can't go up the planets in Paradiso and not have Beatrice already asking a question that Dante hasn't even framed yet What's in his mind. What's the theological word that you sometimes huh? What's the theological word that you sometimes use? Oh. The perichoresis? I didn't use that tonight, Doc. No, I didn't. Perichoresis is the word the church uses. It's a theological expression. To, it describes the indwelling of persons, the trinity. Um, Jeannie, you have a question? No, I'm trying to think what, what Mark was Oh. Referring to. I can't help you. You know, sometimes people ask me to say it again. There's no way I can go back two minutes or I really can't. They say, what did you just say? <laughs> Don't ask me. God. God. Out of my mind. Okay, let's. Okay, is everybody clear in that? About how extraordinary that is? I mean, that really is amazing to me, you know. Christ has forgiven us. That's why I went to a cross. But he asked, us, he asked us to join him on a cross. What does that mean? We can't let injustices go. Not in our marriages, not in our families, not in the world. How many, how many people have the courage to say, no, that's wrong. And bring a mercy to it. And if the mercy is fulfilled, how many can bring forgiveness to it? Let it go. Don't carry it on. I'm assuming all of it. I mean, I know for myself how hard that is. That's our cross. Is everybody following? Gita. Do you have something? I, I just love what you just said. He asks us to join him on the cross. <laughs> what a good heart you have. Okay, let's go. Let's go. Okay, hold on to your, hold on to your hats. I want to get through some readings here because I want you to hear the poetry. If we're, if we're, if I didn't have this other stuff to do, I would be glad to take an hour and a half and just read through the Commedia, just passages, because they are, the, particularly in the Paradiso, they are so beautiful. Dante's description of what heaven is like, unsurpassed. Not anybody close, not anybody close to him. Okay, um, let's go. 469, page 469. You remember that when we met last time, we were at the level of the sun, and um, Dante was meeting with St. Thomas, who praised um, the Franciscan order. That was from one garland of lights. And then Bonaventure stepped forward from another garland and praised the Dominicans. What we see in that exchange, to me, is absolutely crucial. There is nothing in heaven, nothing in heaven, that won't be a courtesy. 
Now let me ask this, if what I said a while ago is true and that we're supposed to live justice and mercy and forgiveness, how many of us can say everything we do in our life with each other is courteous? We're in heaven. I'm, I'm not kidding. We take, we, uh, sorry, this is, I, I, I knew when I did this. I mean, I was thinking about this class for the last week because I've been amazed by it. And I was thinking to myself, this is going to get far more catechetical than I've ever gotten in my life. Because <laughs> you know I teach this literature. But I'm looking at this catechetically and thinking, oh, holy cow. If this is what he's doing, and I believe he is, and, and we, take, we take Christ into us. God, this is scary to me. I'm just, so you know, I'm, this frightens me. We take Christ into us. We're invited into the kingdom. We're to think of ourselves as being there, a part of his kingdom. How much of what we do with each other is in perfect courtesy? I, I mean, I, I fail all the time, just so you, I'm not, I hope you don't feel me. I'm just, I look at that and think it's amazing because that's what he's asking us to do. Um, what we're watching between Bonaventure and St. Thomas is this wonderful exchange. They have nothing but praise to offer each other. This is the good. By the way, and remember this, there is no level, not a level, not a level in which we're meeting souls who are not making a denunciation of the church. Every level has its own denunciation. The church is corrupt here, it's corrupt here, it's corrupt here, it's corrupt here. Dante's looking at all the corruption. We're gonna see this in a minute when he meets Cassiaguida. The church is full of corruptions. The priests are getting fat, they're lazy, they're heavy, they're not doing their job. The Pope is not leading the way he should. <laughs> Dante's, the people who think Catholics are asked to give this blind obedience, Dante's, I mean, he's not letting anybody off. He's not letting anybody off at all. Thomas and Bonaventure have this exchange, and then Dante has this question about this light, this man that St. Thomas said was the wisest man in the world. And that's where we left, remember? That was Solomon. And I, and I gave you the contrast. In Milton, in Paradise Lost, Milton has nothing good to say about Solomon. He hates him. Because Solomon, for him, is this embodiment of lust. He's got these thousand wives as if one wife were enough. I can remember saying, if only I had that kind of wisdom and looked over at Suzanne and she gave me that. That's the social of the time. Oh, it was not. was not. Anyway, so Solomon is, um, Dante praises this man, okay? And I want to, I want to go there quickly. Um, turn to What am I, 469, I think? Yeah, I think. Do you have it? Sorry. Solomon? I know, 469.71. Where's. Um, 469. Bottom of the page, my words were meant to bring back to your mind the fact that he was a king and asked his Lord for wisdom to suffice a worthy, worthy king. He didn't ask anything for himself. He wanted to be a good king. This is from scripture, by the way. So you know how grounded Dante is always grounded in scripture at some point. He's not off in his head anywhere. That's what makes him so orthodox. In Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, ask what I shall give thee. 
Solomon said, Give therefore an understanding heart to judge thy people, that I may discern between good and bad, for who is able to judge this thy so great a people? God said to him, Because thou hast asked this thing, and hast not asked for thyself long life, neither hast thou asked for riches, nor asked for life of thine enemies, but it asked for um, thyself understanding to serve judgment. Behold, I have done according to thy words. Lo, I have given thee a wise and understanding heart, so that there was none like thee before thee, neither after thee, nor um, neither after thee shall any arise like unto thee. Now Dante's taking that seriously. Remember, I went through this. What Dante does is set Solomon next to Adam and Christ, because Adam was made directly by God. I mean, how how does how do we take Scripture literally when God said, nobody will ever be as wise as you, not before, not since. Well, what about Adam? What about Christ? So there's a real distinction to make, and Dante makes it by saying, Adam was created directly by God, Christ too. But except for those two, Solomon, according to Scripture, was the wisest man, according to God, um, that's ever existed. In... Um, 472, take a look at 472, Beatrice has got two questions, because remember Solomon has appeared from out of this garland, he was the brightest light, because he was the wisest man, and so Solomon, here, here's where the point that I was making, um, you know that Calvin hated the body, thought the body was corrupt, that's Calvin, but the Protestant de denominations tend to frown on the body, they, they look at the corruption as complete. The Catholic has always celebrated the body, always. The body is what makes us good. It's what makes us different from the angels. It was a great thing. For Christ to, if there were ever a question about it, for Christ to enter the body glorified it. There can't be a question. It's, it's what gives us a glory not even the angels have. Think about the modern attitude towards the body and think about um, Pope John Paul's theology of the body. Pope John Paul was trying to answer a century of degrading, a constant degrading of the human body, either sexually overdoing it or by purit puritanly condemning it, the two extremes. For Pope John Paul, it was, a, it was an occasion for celebration, that our body is a great thing, but we have to take care of it. Dante's got these questions and Beatrice asks them, if, if, if we're in a body, given the effulgence of the light in heaven, can we stand it? Will we be able to bear the light in a human body? Because you know if we look at the sun, it would burn us up. You know that Dante's already entered the sun. His body's been transhumanized. So this is a serious question for Dante. Once again, it's a theological question, 473. Then from the brightest of the lights I heard come from the inner round a, a modest tone as was the angel's voice that Mary heard. Long as the joyous feast of paradise shall last, it said, so long our burning love shall clothe us in the radiance you see. Our brilliance is in ratio to our love, our ardor to our vision, and our vision to the degree of grace um, vouchsafed to us. So, this is crucial. Um, the, the degree of love, this is St. Thomas, this is our church. The degree of love we feel depends on our powers of sight. That's why this epic's so important, because Dante's trying to help us enlarge our powers of sight. The more we see, the more we know something, 
The more capable we are of loving, we can't love very well what we don't know. The more we see, the more our ardor, okay? And, um, and our vision to the degree of grace vouchsafes us. So how well we see so often depends on the grace we receive from God, what he helps us to see, right? The more we see, here, let me put it differently. I mean, I hope. The more we see of God in the world, don't we love him more? To see what he does, the stunning things that he does. I mean, I'm assuming that most of us get teary or down on our knees to say, gee, holy cow. I mean, what, we, what can we do to say thank you? That moment of vision when we see that increases the ardor in our hearts. So our hearts follow our powers of sight. Our sight <coughs> depends on the graces given to us, how open we are to seeing. When our flesh, sanctified and glorious, shall clothe our souls once more, our person then will be more pleasing since it's complete, the resurrection of life when we get our bodies. Wherefore, the light generously bestowed on us by the supreme good is increased. The light of glory that shows him to us. The more we see of Christ, I mean, how to explain that? Overwhelmed by gratitude, the more we see of him. Um, it follows then that vision must increase as must the ardor kindled by the vision. The more we see, the more we love. As must be the radiance of the ardor it, the ardor gives. But as a coal burns white in its own fire, whose inner glow outshines its outer flame, so that its form is clearly visible, so this effulgence that, continue, that contains us now will be surpassed in brilliance by the flesh that for so long has lain beneath the ground. Going over nor will such light be difficult to bear. The organs of our bodies will be strengthened and ready for whatever gives us joy. That is once, this is Solomon, the guy who married a thousand wives. Who better to celebrate the glories of the body? Once our bodies are returned, that's the great gift of our humanity. That's what makes us humans. Once our bodies are returned, you know that from the transfiguration, from our readings in scripture. Once, once our bodies return, there will be this extraordinary transfiguration. So the light of the sun, nothing next to whatever that body can take in. The, 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 because think, the light of Christ is infinitely got to out, outshine the sun. So to be in his presence, we won't be burnt to a crisp. Our bodies will be transformed enormously to see this extraordinary light. It's at this point that they rise to Mars, and um, it's here, 478, that Dante is going to meet his great-great-grandfather, Caccio Guido. Um, Dante sees, again, the circling um, garland of lights approaching, and out of it emerges this one soul that rushes to Dante, the bottom of 477. So from the right arm of the cross, a star bringing to that brilliant constellation sped to the center, then down to the foot. It appears as a cross. And I think that's appropriate because this is, the, this is the realm of the warriors. These are the souls who sacrifice their life in battles. Um, and as it coursed along the radial lines, the gem contained within it said it seemed like fire behind an alabaster screen. With like affection did Anchises' shade rush forth. That's not an accident. I hope everybody sees that. We don't know who this is going to be, but the simile gives it away. Because you know who Anchises, those of you who have been here, you know who Anchises is. He's Aeneas' father. 
that when Aeneas went to the underworld, his father came to greet him. So Dante's, here's, here's this enlargement of visiting again. We're not just in Dante's world or in Christ's, we're also in Virgil's. We're back with Enchiseed with Dante and his father meeting. Um, with like affection did Anchises' shade rush forth, if we may trust our greatest muse, when in Elysium he beheld his son. O sanguis meus, o superinfusa gratia dea, si sut tibi qui, bis unquam celi iantia reclusia. O my blood, O grace of God, poured forth beyond measure, to whom is to thee was heaven's gate open twice. Because remember, Dante is going to have to come here again. He's got to return to the world. Remember, he's, he's got to bring this back to the world. And, and people are not going to like, lots of people are not going to like what he has to say. So spoke that brilliance, and I stared at him. Then I turned round to see my lady's face. I stood amazed between the two of them, for such a smile was glowing in her eyes. It seemed that with my own I touched the depths of my beatitude, my paradise. Every step of the way, Beatrice's, her beauty is going to show more and more clearly. He's actually at some point going to be blinded by it. Because the closer they get to God, the more of the brilliance that they share with God will be a part of what happens with them. Remember, Dante's like somebody coming out of a dark room. He's, he's gradually entering into this larger world. Um, Cachiguida says down below, the first words that I comprehended were, blessed be thou three persons in one being who showest such great favor to my seed. Cachiguida feels blessed by the Trinity that he should meet with one of his offspring. 480, branch of my tree, the mere expectancy of whose arrival here gave me delight. I was your root. This was the preface then. Imagine how any of us would feel if our child or grandchild or great-great-grandchild went on to do something, not in, in terms of the world, in terms of God, to do something that, that you see as a grace. Okay. Um, now what's going to take place is Cacio Guida is going to talk about um, his past on page 483. Dante says to him, after Cacio Guida starts talking about Florence and its past, Dante 43, tell me then, cherry source from which I spring, about your own forefathers. Who were they? What years made history when you were young? So he goes back, 484, as glowing coals and a quick breath of air burst into flame, just so I saw that light grow brighter when it heard my loving words. And as his beauty grew before my eyes, so in a voice sweeter and more refined, so different from our modern Florentine, he said, from the day Ave was said, to that in which my mother, now a saint, heavy with child, gave birth to me her son, to its own lion, this fiery star returned. He, he talks about, he boasts of the early history of Florence, um, and he talks about the families that developed, 488, but notice what happens. How great I saw them once, who now are ruined by their own pride, because it happens once families become wealthy and spoiled and you know decadent sets in and and we know the story who now are ruined by their own pride and how those balls of gold shone bright as florence flowered in great deeds such were the fathers of those today who prolong some vacant office in the church and grow fat in sitting in consistory so he's just described the two sources of the ghibellines and the 
else. <coughs> what are they doing with each other? Killing each other, destroying each other. So this is another denunciation of the church. Um, um, he praises Peter and the, the practice of poverty, and he's condemning, again, the corruptions of the church. Um, 491. Oh, my own cherished root, so highly raised that as men see, no triangle contains among its angles two that are obtuse. You see, gazing upon the final point where time is timeless, those contingent things before they ever came into true being. Because they're standing outside of time, they're looking at time the way God does. Before things come into being, when they come into being, after. There's a special kind of... Predestination isn't the word for it, but it's coming close to that. Dante wants to know what he should do, and then in 493, <coughs> this is one of the most important passages in all of the community, because it's here that Dante receives his calling. Remember now, just for a minute, go back to the Aeneid. Remember, if you've read the Aeneid, you know that Aeneas sets out, the gods tell him he's got to found this new city. Right. He founds city after city after city after, every one of them is dying because they're not, they're not the result of the work of the gods, of God. And after eight years of failing, um, he, he, <coughs> he goes to Carthage, has to leave there. And you know Carthage will be the great enemy of Rome. They're gonna go to battle and almost kill each other. From there he will go on to Italy, and it's there that he goes into the underworld and he will meet with Anchises, his father. And it's there that he gets his calling, because inside Anchises, this is what you have to do. It's from the other world. Okay? It's not of our world, it's from the other world. Dante's getting this from his great-great-grandfather who's already dead, but who's of the divine order. 493, you shall be forced to leave behind those things, wait, sorry, um, yeah. You should be forced to leave behind those things you love most dearly, and this is the first arrow the bow of your exile will shoot. He's going to lose his homeland. Dante's going to be forced into exile, we know that. And you will know well how salty is the taste of others' bread, how hard the road that takes you down and up the stairs of others' homes. But what will weigh you down the most will be the despicable, senseless company whom you shall have to bear in that sad veil. All the ungrateful, all completely mad and vicious, they shall turn on you, but soon their cheeks, not yours, will have to blush from shame. Proof of their bestiality will show through their own deeds. It will be to your honor to have become a party of your own. It, his glory will show most when he leaves that world with all of its corruptions, even though none of those people have anything good to say of him. Remember when the Jews came out of the, after Christ in the Act of the Apostles, when Christ was crucified and they went in to preach and the Jews threw them out of the temple, they came out, if you remember the reading, they came out glad because they knew that confirmed them in the goodness that they were doing. Um, 494, middle of the page. Now write this in your mind, but do not tell the world. And he said things concerning him incredible, even to those who see them all come true. No envy towards your neighbor should you bear, for you will have a future that endures far longer than their crime and punishment. Go on over, 495. Father, well do I see how time attacks spurring towards me to deal me with such a blow as falls the hardest on the least prepared. So it's good that foresight lend me arms. Thus should the place most dear to me be lost, my verse at least shall not lose me. Even if he 
Remember, all the great, all the great saints live in exile. That's their nature. They, they are pilgrims. They're not of this world. They, they commit Christ's love to do what Christ did in the world for the world, but the world rejects them. Dante's only consolation now is that he knows he's going to be in exile, but that the truth of what he speaks will live on. Down through the world of endless bitterness and on the mountain from whose lovely crown I was raised upward by my lady's eyes, and through the heaven rising from light to light, I learned things that were they to be retold would leave a bitter taste in many mouths. Yet if I am timid a friend to truth, I fear my name may not live up with those who will look back at these as old days. Whether people are going to be happy with it or not, he's got to say it. Um, if he's to be true to his calling. The light that was resplendent in the treasure I had found there began to flash more light like a golden mirror in the sun and then replies, the conscience that is dark with shame for its own deeds or for another's may well indeed feel harshness in your words. Nevertheless, do not resort to lies. Let what you write reveal all you have seen and let those men who itch scratch where it hurts. Though when your words are taken in at first, they may taste bitter, but once well digested, they will become a vital nutriment. Your cry of words will do as do the winds striking the hardest at the highest peaks, and this will be for honor no small grounds. So you have been shown here in these fears down on the mountain and in the pain-filled valley only those souls whose names are known to fame, because the listener's mind will never trust or have faith in the kind of illustration based on the unfamiliar and obscure, or demonstration that is not outstanding. Things that are not obvious to man will be generally disbelieved. So, the, the, I mean, it, Dante's clear that about the difficulties that he's going to have to face bringing this back to the world. Um, let me, let me um, briefly go over the next count, and then I want to take a break for a few minutes because this is a lot, and then try to finish here in the time we have. In the next canto, 18, Dante um, um, rises to the level of Jupiter and he sees thousands of light souls shaping themselves into the form of an eagle. On page 500, the first words of the message, verb and noun, diligiti justitium qui idicatis terum, after them, and the final letter, the M, on the fifth word, they stayed aligned, and Joe's silver became the background of their gold. So the last letter is an M, and that M forms itself into the shape of an eagle with its wings, okay? This is God's, an image of God's justice in the world. It, it picks up with what we what was begun here with um, Justinian and, and God's justice at work in the world, except this is at a higher level of being. Um, <coughs> now, this is going to, this is, this canto is going to deal with some of the questions that some of you have been troubled with from the beginning because it's here Dante's going to ask about the justice of the unbaptized. And so there are some tough questions that Dante's going to deal with here. So the eagle appears to Dante, page 502. 
What I have to tell you here and now, no tongue has told or ink has written down, nor any fantasy imagine it, for I could hear the beak and see it move. I heard its voice use words like I and mine, when in conception it was we and ours. This is one of the reasons I love Faulkner and what he does with language. <laughs> I hope everybody's seeing what's going on here. He's got to find a way to express what can't be expressed in human language, right? If, if heaven is a transcendent condition, the, the laws of time and space don't apply. I mean, I'm assuming everybody, no, not everybody there is going to speak English. I mean, I don't know what, you know, but people are not going to have trouble communicating there, whatever goes on, whether we use language or not. But one of the things Dante's been facing all along is how does he use language, English, in time and space sequentially to describe something that's not sequential? where time and space don't exist, and grammatical structures don't apply. So he says, for I could hear the beak, see it move, and I heard its voice use the words like I and mine. That's what it seemed to be saying. When in conception, it was we and, what he hears is we and our. Because is there anything going on in heaven that doesn't imply the Trinity, a shared community of persons? There's no such thing as <coughs> individualism as we, where you're isolated individuals. That's not our concept of our God. Each one of us is a unique person. That's our understanding. We're not like other people. Each one of us is unique and separate, distinct. But at the same time, our God is Trinitarian. We were meant to love and be loved, be one with each other. So by nature, there's an hour that we carry in what we do. And Dante's struggle, I mean, he's giving us some sense of that, of what he's doing with language. Now, um, Dante's raising all these questions about the baptized and God's justice in the world because so often unjust things happen and you can't make sense of them. Five, nine, four, sorry, four, 503. Then he said, he who with his compass drew the limits of the world and out of chaos brought order to things hidden and, re and renewed, right? God, we know from the Old Testament and the Psalms that God was the 503, the bottom, that God structured the world, set its limits and its pillars and its foundations. And 504, could not impress his quality so much upon the universe, but that his word should not remain in infinite excess. No matter how much we can understand, the word will always be on our grasp. He was the creator. However great our understanding, we will never be able to penetrate his mind. He, he made us. He made create, Christ, the word, made creation. So however much we think we understand things, he will always be beyond our grasp. The proof is that as in the first proud one, the highest of all creatures who plunged down unright because he would not wait for light. In his arrogance, in his arrogance, Satan wanted to be like God. I mean, interesting here that the, I mean, it, the, the implication is pride, but the way it's expressed is impatient. He wanted it now. That is, he wanted to have his will and revolted. The proof of this is in the first proud one, the highest of all creatures, who plunged down unright because he would not wait for light. Hence, clearly, every lesser nature is too small a vessel can contain that good 
which knows no bounds, whose measure is itself. God is being. He's infinite. How can we even begin to penetrate his being? Therefore, a vision which can only be one of the rays that comes from the primal mind, which penetrates every created thing, cannot of its own nature be so weak as not to see that its own principle is far beyond what our eyes can perceive. And so the vision granted to your world can no more fathom justice everlasting than eyes can see down to the ocean floor. When you can see the bottom near the shore, you cannot out at sea, but nevertheless it's still there, concealed by depths too deep. Is that image clear? I love that image. People who think they, you know, they're so ready to condemn God because why is he doing this or why? The image is, here's land and here's the ocean. So even if we can see the depth here, we, or the shore here, it's perceivable to us. We know that out here, the depths are still there, they're real. They're just too deep for us. We can't see them. Um, Mariana Trench, there you go. What? The Mariana Trench, there you go. Mm -hmm. um, well, you can see the bottom near the shore. You cannot out at sea, but nonetheless, it's still there, concealed by depths too deep. So Dante says, what about the baptized? Top of 505. He dies unbaptized, dies without the faith. What is this justice that condemns his soul? What is his guilt if he does not believe? And who are you to sit in judgment seat and pass on things a thousand miles away when you can hardly <laughs> see beyond your nose? The man who would argue fine points with me if Holy Scripture were not there to guide us would surely have serious grounds for doubt. O earthbound creatures, O thick-headed men, the primal will which of itself is good never moves from itself the good supreme. Only that which accords with it is just. It is not drawn to any finite good, but sending forth its rays that's good. There's nothing God does that isn't good, whether we understand it or not. He won't do anything bad or unjust. We may not be able to see it or understand it, but if we knew, believed that God was good, we couldn't doubt for a minute. Um, if we've got questions about this, Doesn't that mean, in some sense, he sees so far beyond us that I mean, we're left with questions? Or Mark, go ahead. But it, God never said the unbaptized to go to hell. Man has said that in interpretation. Right. I mean, it's just. So, so I mean, you, you've got. You, I mean, you've you're got saying, a guy justifying what man has done by saying God knows. Yeah, you're. You're just. It, it doesn't. So you're saying what Dante's saying. Good this whole stuff off. goes on. Here, that's where we're going. Hold on one minute, you guys. Here, because this is, this is going to be... So, here, this is where we're going. I'll stop. I'm going to stop right here. And it just said, So the eagle focuses and says, look at my eye and see, because what he shows then around his eye, the center of this justice, are people who are there because they're going to point to these questions. So turn to 508, or 509. Um... He says, look at the eyes, and you'll see the reflection of something of God's justice. 510, of all the fire souls which give me form, the ones that give the eye within my head its brilliant luster are the worthiest. He at the center of the pupil's spark wrote songs inspired by the Holy Spirit and once conveyed the ark from town to town. We all know who that is, right? Who conveyed the ark? Who wrote the psalms? Oh, David. David. Thank you. David. So there at the center, David, was he Christian? 
Catholic? Now he knows the value of his psalm so far as his own gifts contributed, for his bliss is commensurate to it. Of those five souls that form my eyebrows arch, the one who shines the closest to my beak consoled the widow who had lost her son. That's Trajan, because one of the widows, and when Trajan was the pagan emperor, one of the widows came to him on behalf of her son, and he helped her. I mean, he, he was one of the best emperors in Rome, if not the best. Um, and now he knows from living this sweet life and having lived <coughs> the opposite how dear it cost a man to fail to follow Christ. He gives Hezekiah um, down below. It's Constantine. The next light went to Greece, hearing the laws, and me to let the shepherd take his place. Go on over, um, 511. And at the down sweep of the arch, you see that William, this is William of Sicily, mourned for by the land which now deplores the fact that Charles and Frederick live. And now he knows how much is loved in heaven, a righteous king, and splendidly he makes this clear to all through his effulgence here. I want to get to the next one because this is related. All these people are there by virtue of God's mercy. And anybody who takes a different view is going to be reading really legalistically into something in the Bible that's not there. The Old Testament God, Father John Robert used to do this and all this stuff. The Old Testament God is a God of mercy. Ultimately, you have, you can't, however much he's, he's associated with a God of law because he is, he's a God of law. But we know that he's a God of mercy too. So these people are here illustrating a truth. Here's the interesting one I want you to look at. Who in your erring world would have believed that Riphius of Troy was here, the fifth in his half circle? Now, Riphius was a Trojan. He's one of the soldiers mentioned in Aeneas. <coughs> so, this, by the way, look here. This is not a history. This is a piece of poetry. Um, how much factually you know about the characters of the Trojan War, I don't know. I think Achilles is probably real, but anyway, we, anyway, I believe that there. Riphius is one of these soldiers who died in the Trojan War. At the beginning of the book, when Aeneas comes to Carthage, he's describing the Trojan War collapse, the, the Troy, the destruction of Troy to, um, to um, Dido. And he's describing that moment when the, when the Trojans were being overrun by the Greeks, and they suddenly had this plan to put on the armor of the Greeks and disguise themselves to protect themselves and attack. And when they did, um, they were successful for a while, but then the Greeks caught on and, and then they were in trouble again. But this is one of these passages where Aeneas is describing this moment. This is early on in Aeneas. I love this, so bear with me for a minute. Mm -hmm. Here before us Cape Cassandra Prime's virgin daughter, dragged by her long hair out of Minerva's shrine, lifting her brilliant eyes. This, so the Trojans are there watching Cassandra, Trojan, being dragged out. Because if you've read the Aeneid, you know how brutal the Greeks are. I mean, they really, really are brutal. In Homer's world, not so much, but in Virgil's world, there's nothing good to say about the Greeks. Lifting her brilliant eyes in vain to heaven, her eyes alone as her white hands were bound. Corybius, infuriated, could not bear it, but plunged into the midst to find his death. One of the Trojans was so outraged at seeing Cassandra treated this way that he rushed in to fight them and was killed. And it's at this point that Aeneas describes all these Trojans who are killed in this, this particular skirmish. Um, forest, bend and, forest bend and roar and raging all in spume. Nereus with his trident chumps the deep. It's, it's a 
cosmic catastrophe, the gods are involved in it. Nereus with his trident churns the deep, then some whom we had taken by surprise under cover of right throughout the city and driven off came back again. They knew our shields and arms for liars now, our speech alien to their own, so they, they're discovered. They overwhelmed us. Crebus fell at the warrior's goddess's altar, killed by Peneleos, and Riphius fell. This is the only mention in all of history that I know of by this guy, Riphius, okay? Um, and Riphius fell, a man uniquely just among the Trojans, the soul of equity, but the gods thought otherwise. That's it. So here's this very righteous Trojan, very righteous man, and he's killed, and Virgil's way of describing it is a very righteous man, but the gods thought otherwise. Why did Dante put this Trojan soldier here in the eye of the eagle? Who in your caring world would have believed that Riphius of Troy was here, the fifth of his half circle made of holy lights? I love this. Remember the phrase in Virgil was, most just of Trojans, but the gods thought otherwise. Dante's putting him here because what he's saying is, those gods may have thought otherwise, but this god thought otherwise himself. He's, is everybody clear? It's, it's a one-upsmanship on yeah. the pagan gods, that, that this god is so much greater than, doesn't, he's so much greater than anything the pope, pagan gods could have come to. Well, we proceed on page 312, Dante gives us, or sorry, 512. Um, what Dante does then is recount some history, and I'm going to just do this briefly and then I want to take a break. He gives us the ancient story. This was the tradition passed down in the earlier church that one of the bishops had so loved Trajan that he um, prayed to God to have him return to life and was baptized. That's a tradition within the church, um, and Dante's working off of it. That God's great is great enough to have done this. The bishop's prayers were answered. And, and of Riphius, it says on page 513, the other soul by means of grace that wells up from a spring so deep that no man's eye has ever plumed the bottom of its source, <coughs> devoted all his love to righteousness, and God with grace on grace opened his eyes to our redemption, and he saw the light, and he believed in this. From that time on, he could not bear the stench of pagan creed and warned all its perverse practitioners. He was baptized more than a thousand years before baptism was. And those three ladies you saw at the right wheel were his baptism. Predestination, he's going to go on to a... Right. Yeah, isn't that, uh, mm. I don't get that. Calvinistic? Mm. Predestination, the word? He had that all figured out. It yeah. Didn't matter what he did. Just well. Well, but names all. How's it different from how's it pre, how's it different from predestination? I don't know. There's a. How's it different? Yeah. Yeah. Well, how is it? I'm asking a question. <laughs> I'm asking anybody. Can anybody offer? Is there? I mean, I I don't want to take time. Dante doesn't go into it much here. I mean, he just uses the word so. Yeah. So the, the, the predestination is the same as determination? Predetermined? Right. Predestined is the same thing? Yeah. You can't change what is to be? Right. Right. Who said what is to be? Do I have free will? Well, What's the difference between this passage and Calvin from what we know, from the little that we know? Take a look at Ahab or 
think about K, or we do, well, we haven't, everybody hasn't. What do we know about Calvin and his ideas of predestination? Are they the same as Dante's? Is this the same? Is Dante the same as Milton? Milton, by the way, denied it. I mean, he was explicitly critical of Calvin in Paradise Laws because he believed in free will. There's nothing here said about anybody being predestined to be damned. Mm -hmm. What Dante's showing in this whole passage, if you run through the whole thing, wait, 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 just listen, just be open for a second. Well, we're getting through all of this, the, the, the one thing that's consistent in all of these things is God's mercy. That, that people are too, he will say this over and over, that people are too quick to judge and they tend to do it in a negative way. That what all of these examples serve to show is that God's mercy is greater than anything we can um, do to understand it. Uh, that this is, not a, this is not a vindictive God. The, the, the fundamental difference is this, for, for, for Calvin to say that some people are predestined to damnation and there's a good number of them, is to say that God before time, before anybody is born, has already said they're evil damned. That comes from God. That doesn't square with our Catholic belief that this is a God of mercy. Um, so, but it doesn't mean that God, um, in his, remember there's no time for God, there's no time, there's no past and present for him. When he's doing it, when he, we're, when we're, this, we're, we've got to get to Boethius because this is why I want to get to Boethius and what he does with predestination, but even waiting on this. God's outside of time, there's no past and present. What we know of our God is, particularly with Christ, if it was never clear before, it can't be in, nobody can be in the doubt afterwards. God let himself be killed. He let himself be killed to show how infinite his love was for us and he asked us to do the same. That's not an evil, it's not an unmerciful God. So if there's predestination at work, whatever we say about it, I mean, it's a complicated thing, we can't say what Calvin said. That's a very, very dark, very, very dark understanding of God. I'm going to take exception to that, but I, I, I want to... He knows. <laughs> we, we have free will to do it. Next week, right? <laughs> there's, there's a line, I'm sorry, I'm missing it too, and I want to get to one line because we, we're about ready. Um, the fact that God knows it doesn't predestine it. Let me just say that. Right. Here, hold on, just let me hear, because this is, um, when we get to Boethius, a lot of this is going to get a little bit clearer. The fact that God sees it doesn't necessitate it. It doesn't mean he can't will things in advance. But for anybody to say that everything's determined because he says it isn't logical. Because the fact that he sees it doesn't necessarily... I don't want to go there, but I just want to leave that as a question for you guys. Go, go ahead, just quickly. No, but that's, that's what I was getting to with go the ahead. grandfather thing. Because it was the contingent... The contingent things. 
does not exist beyond the material world. This contingency has no place in the community. What page? Because that's a good, where are you? 492. I'm glad, I mean, that's a good reading, Chester, because, oh, good, that's the line. Was, read it, can you? Read it. Well, I just read the footnote. No, read the, read the line that Read line says, 37, those two, yeah. those two stanzas. Contingency, which in no way extends beyond the pages of your world of matter, is all depicted in the internal sight. But this no more confers necessity than does the movement of a boat downstream depend on the eyes that mirror it. Explain that now. Flesh that out. In your own words. Um, you, it's a good passage. Because, well, all right. It's no, kind of what you said. Doesn't mean it's necessary. Uh, yeah. Let me, if I can try can to you see the. We live in a contingent world. Contingence is chance. They're not determined. Mm -hmm. let, and let, try to let, let me map that. God lives in an order of first causes. He's the first cause of everything. Everything goes back to him, first cause. We live in an order of secondary causes. It's God's way of protecting our freedom. So there's an element, a, a fundamental element of contingency. Everything goes on in our world. We, we, we keep a contingency fund in our bank account on the possibility that our washing machine may break. Mm -hmm. We allow for contingencies, right? I, I think if you don't allow for contingencies, you're not... You're in trouble. <laughs> right, you really are. Because we don't know what's going to happen. We, things are not determined. Right. Things are not determined. God doesn't do that. He protects our free will. He does, God does not determine things. Calvin believes that. We don't. We live in a world of contingencies, which means we're free. And that image is a perfect one. But this no more confers necessity than does the movement of a boat downstream depend on the eyes that mirror it. So if God is above time watching this river right. unfold, he knows. But the fact that he sees it doesn't necessitate it. He doesn't determine it. Because that's, that's the claim that everything is determined and we have no free will. And that's absolutely contrary to our faith. We believe, we believe that our world is a world of in, ad, contingency and adventure, of How risking. His grandfather why does his grandfather predict these things? Now, I can see someone predicting something. Now, but what did I can he... predict something, too. I can say, because you've done this, right. several people are going to be, uh, right. be a little stronger in their faith, and then when you go, people will go, you know, I thought that guy was boring, but you know what? I learned a lot, and I'm going to miss him now after dissing him when he was here. Right? I mean, I can say that now, and I'm, I bet you I'm going to be right. <laughs> All of you meet God. Here, well, let me... Well, I, you can be driven from my home. Let me... Where did you have something? Now, um, let me just... I mean, we could spend hours on this. We can't do it. Let me try to do it, if I can make this brief. I'm not going to answer everybody's questions. It's, it's a profound problem. Let me try to put it this way, because um, it's a good question. Cacio Guida doesn't um, predict exact things. Right. He, he tells him, right. But he knows that there's going to be an exile. Now, hold on, just so everybody's clear about this. And everybody's got to see this, and I, don't, I hope it, it, it's not going to turn some of you into dark skeptics. What, what time did Dante write the Divine Comedy? Oh, and I was 
going back to historical. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. No, you're the troublemaker. You be still. Whatever you want to do. What time? When did you be still? When did Dante write the Divine Comedy? He started in 1308 and finished it in 1321, I think, and he died 13 a year later. Started in 1308. When was he exiled? We know this from the book. 1302. How does Dante know in this book all the things that are going to happen? Because they've already happened. Wait, now I, I almost wait. You wait. No, be, be still. Be still. So the easy answer to this is, and I, I mean, I, I hope everybody doesn't buy it. The easy answer is he already knew. Wait, Virgil is writing about an event. Virgil lived in 70, writing about 70 BC, somewhere. He's writing about an event that took place in 1200 BC. How does he know all the, historically, so that he presents them and the prophecies that go through the need? Mm -hmm. Because they've already happened. Yeah. So does that mean, does that mean for the skeptics, there is no prophetic element to... No, it, it can help explain a lot of artistic things, but the harder question is the one you guys are raising, and that is, if Cachiguidas outside of <laughs> if Cachiguidas outside of time, and he's looking at a contingent world, things are not determined, but he knows the violence that's going on, and he's really clear about it. Does the fact that it's going to lead to an expulsion or an exile mean that it necessitated? <coughs> is it possible for somebody? standing outside this river watching this boat, that's like outside of time, is it possible for he to, him to see where things are going without predetermining them? So then, <laughs> he's writing this book, and he went through all this stuff and gets up to this point. Does he need to... Uh, This is almost like he's putting a little justification in about him writing this book on himself. He's you patting can, himself on the back a little bit, going, well, you know. You can put it that way. I don't, but you can, if you want to put a dark cast on it, you can. Well, he let me just that up here, and the whole thing. Let me, let me put it this here. Let me, let me tell him, look, it's, you're going to be in trouble. They're going to kick you out, but you're doing the right thing, so stick yeah. with it. And here, let me, let me try to answer be, it this way. Imagine he's encouraging him to, or I don't know what is it. What is it? He's encouraging him, or he's uh, uh, heavenly justification for writing this book. That he's on the right yes. path, and, and, and it's a good path to be on, and, and finish your work, and it's going to be fruitful for you. Okay. Let me let me buy my book. Here, we've got to stop because we've yeah, we've got to, here here. Let me two quick thoughts. One is, we know, we all have read novels of <coughs> men and women who become disillusioned by their experiences. And when they have, and that disillusionment colors their writing, we know that the writing that they produce is very often dark, vicious, I mean, lots of violent things go on. The, the only way that I can answer Chester's question, and the two of you need to turn away from each other, I can't, what, the, what the two of you are doing here is, look at yourselves for a second. Is Dante, is what Dante's doing in a spirit of self-justification, or is it in love? And I'll leave that to you. I don't want to answer it right now. Is he doing this to justify his sense of being unfairly treated or exiled, or um, is, is, he, is he, from what we know, is, he, is what he's presenting, as nearly as we can tell, 
an accurate rendering of the truth of supernatural realities, or that is, in love, in knowledge, or is it a dark and cynical view because of... And I don't want to go there. Just leave the question. Okay. Turn back to 512 for the last thing. They're talking about Riphius. This will be the last thing. I do want to leave this with you because to me it goes so, so to the heart of what we're talking about. What, what is the motive behind what Dante's doing and what he's showing us about paradise. And then it's, I'm more radiant than ever. The blessed emblem answered me at once rather than keep me wondering in suspense. I see that you believe these things are true because I say them, but you see not how, thus though they are believed, their truth is hid. That is, we can believe something and just accept it blindly because somebody says it, says it, or we can believe it because our minds have penetrated into the truth and we can see that there's something more to it. Okay? You do as one who apprehends a thing by name but cannot see its quiddity, that is, you can't see to the essence of it, unless someone explains it for its sake. Mm -hmm. Now, I just want to leave everybody with this, because it's going to this idea of Riphius. Remember, the Virgil's description of Riphius is the most just of tr Trojans, but the gods thought otherwise. Dante's putting him here, I think, is his way of saying, but the, the gods thought otherwise, that he's showing that this god of our faith is a God of mercy. And we know from everything that we've learned that this God does not do away with justice or Christ would not have gone to a cross. This God takes justice very seriously. That's the whole of the Old Testament. There's nothing going on in what Christ did that goes against the Old Testament because if that's true, he'd be going against his Father. He does not do that. Everything he does makes it clear he's doing in obedience to his Father. So justice is not a small thing. Dante's made that clear. He, he is not annulling it playing loose with it, he's not explaining it away. This God is a God of mercy, and here's probably the greatest truth of it. You do as one who apprehends a thing by name but cannot see its quiddity unless someone explains it for its sake. Regnum solorum suffers violence gladly from fervent love, from vibrant hope. Only these powers can de defeat God's will. Not in the way one man conquers another, for that will wills its own defeat. Any man who wants to do that is going to be defeated, whether you can see it coming or not. And so defeated, it defeats through its own mercy. The first soul of the eyebrow and the fifth cause you to wonder. Okay, now, here are these men who are there, um, who are pagans, who weren't baptized. Um, what's he saying? What's this? The, the, the word from, by, by the way, this is God, this is Christ to... Um, it, in two places. In one of them he says, um, oh God, what's, um, sorry. There's, there's one from a passage in, in Matthew, I think it's Matthew 10 or 11, where he, um, he's saying, um, um, and the gates of hell will not prevail against you. The, um, the, the, kingdom, of, the kingdom of God suffereth violence, and the violence bear it away. What did he mean when Christ said that? The kingdom of God suffereth violence, and the violent bear it away. Look at here now. Regnum solorum suffereth violence, the kingdom of God, gladly from fervent love, from vibrant hope, only these powers can defeat God's will. Not in the way one man conquers another, for that will wills its own defeat. And so defeated, it defeats it through its own mercy. 
How did God defeat himself? What is Dante saying here? Because Christ let himself be killed. To show just how infinite God's love is. That's the only way. So, that violence does away with everything. God's love is infinitely greater than any of us can ever get our minds around. Whatever else we say, the only proper way of standing in the presence of God is in humility and asking. Because we don't know. What we do know, according to our faith, is that his, in, his mercy is infinite. To do away with justice? Absolutely not. To go beyond justice? Absolutely. It fulfills it in a way no human could. So, what he's showing us here in the eye of an eagle, he's trying to answer all these questions. This is really important. Because when we tend to look at justice, we tend to get very legalistic. A law. And I'm trying to do everything I can here to make it clear. God does never, he never does away with the law. What he does is fulfill it with a mercy that goes so far beyond us. It's almost impossible to think about. We finish the Paradiso next week. Are we still on the little uh, path up there? Or are we bound that? No, we're here. We're actually, we're, we're going to start here next week. We're going to, we just did Jupiter with okay. the eagle. Bring new meaning to the, to the serenity prayer. I don't know what that means, Bob. Is that good or bad? <laughs> well, I mean, the courage, the courage to know that. Virgil was plagiarist. A plagiarist? Why do you say that? Oh, Mark, God, stop. No, he was not a plagiarist. Put this way, he, he did not have. Did you read the Aeneid seriously? I know when you fell in love with her years ago. Read it. I didn't do your class, boy.